0: So this morning, we come to the end of the four-week series that Lisa and I have been doing on Eucharist as, a, as an epiphany reality, as a, as a revealing of Christ the King. And this morning, we want to think a bit about Eucharist as a lived remembrance. And the phrase we want to work with this morning is the one you see in your bulletin in the uh, 1 Corinthians 11 passage, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus says twice, first after the bread and then after the cup. So note those words with me do this in remembrance of me. So, first of all, you just have the do, which is just a, a perpetual command to do something. And then you have the this, do this, which means break bread and pass the cup. And the word to do it as a memorial or in remembrance of me. But if you look at verse 26, we've also got these words that we looked at a couple of weeks ago where Paul says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, actually, you may not have ever thought of this, but this passage in 1 Corinthians is the first time, like chronologically, the the first time in time when we have these words of institution, these words of the Eucharist, the synoptic gospels came later uh, after Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians. And so, so this notion of you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, but Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And so does that mean that in Eucharist, actually we do this in remembrance of the cross? Is that what's going on here? And I just want to say this morning that I don't think Paul meant to say that proclaiming the Lord's death is the sum total of all that you do in Eucharist. I mean, uh, Jesus quoted scriptures in ways to make a point he wanted to make. Paul quotes scriptures in a way that he wants to make a point. And here Paul is trying to make a point so that in context, what Paul was trying to say is, He's trying to show how the Eucharistic practices in Corinth weren't actually revealing Christ the person and the new community, this new body of Christ, which was meant to be a unity amongst huge diversity, but rather the Corinthian Eucharistic practices were examples of existing cultural and religious and social norms, which being fundamentally divisive, as Lisa showed us the first week, were therefore anti-Christ and anti-the death of Jesus. Which was meant? The death of Jesus was meant to picture in your mind re-hyphen member. The death of Jesus was to remember all of humanity. There's a very important word in the Synoptic Gospels, ethne, or ethnos, and it means all the others. So the notion is something like this: amongst all of humanity, God chose Israel, chose Abraham, and said to Abraham, "I'm going to make you into great nation." and you're going, to be, you're going to serve every other human being on earth. So there was Israel, and there was the ethne, or the ethnos, all the others. And in Christ, everything is coming back together to its intended unity and wholeness and purpose. And Paul sees the Corinthian practices around Eucharist as working against that, working against his big ideas, you know, that we read in Galatians and Colossians, that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, Circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or scythian, you're all one in Christ. Or think of the uh, vision that John sees in Revelation 7, where he saw a great multitude from every nation, tribe, and people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And so what Paul's doing in this passage is he's seeing the ideal there is in Christ, the unity of Christ's body amongst all those differences, And then on the other hand, he sees the current Eucharistic practices in Corinth and says, you're actually using religion, probably inadvertently, but practices of religion are actually working against the purposes of God. And so Paul wants everybody to see that they're meant to be an insider to the Jesus story. They're meant to participate in the whole story told by Jesus' death. What Paul's trying to say is that whoever you are, no matter where you're from, Never minding other groups or narratives from which you might have been included, excluded, you can be included in this. And so Paul's wanting the church in Corinth to see that the death of Christ, its motives and its purposes, not just the death of Christ standing alone as an act, but what underlighted, it, what were the motives and purposes? Paul wants the church in Corinth to see that if you pick that up, if you pick up the death of Christ with its motives and its purposes, and you pick that up for yourself as a model of death to self, for death to insisting on my own way in social settings. Paul sees that this would heal their relational sins by giving them an alternative, Christ infused imagination for human relationships. That's the tension that's in this passage. So, we said in week two that the cross, of course, is central to Christian spirituality. But central is not the same as total. So again, when Paul says, whenever you do this, you proclaim the death of Christ, that's true. I, who would have any quarrel with Paul about that? And so it's central, but it's not the same as total. For totality, you need to remember the whole person, Jesus, which includes remembering his sacrificial death, but can't be reduced to it. So remembering the whole person, I want to say, does two wonderful things. It makes our memorial week in and week out personal and relational, and it makes it all-inclusive of the person so that it can then bring to mind Jesus' moral teachings. Think the Sermon on the Mount. Or his eschatological teaching. Think of uh, the Olivet Discourse. Or all of his parables on the kingdom. Or his deeds of power. Or just the manner in which he carried himself on the earth. This is the memorial. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And that saying, do this in remembrance of me, came during a very relational meal setting. And there's much more that could be said about that, but just think about the relationality of Jesus sitting around with his first friends around a meal. And so this is a very relational statement, I want to say, so that when Jesus says, remember me, he means remember a particular person. Remember my life. It's an invitation, I think, for his first hearers, for the the apostles sitting around the table. I think it was an invitation to re-experience all the three, three and a half years that they'd had together. Not least the Last Supper, which was connected to the Passover, which connects Jesus to this whole big Jewish story. And so when Jesus says, remember me, he probably expected his first hearers to think something like, remember what he did with us and for us. And so that remembering me is meant to call to mind Jesus's whole life of obedience, holiness, and love, and generosity, and creativity, and his present-day ministry. You know, you think of the the testimony of the scriptures. I just chosen a few here to try to help us feel this point. John 1 says, in him, in his person, was the life. John 10 says, I have come that humanity might have life. John 14, Jesus again pointing to his person says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. When he says throughout the synoptics, come follow me, he's talking about come follow a person, which includes us taking up our own cross in order to follow him. Or in John 20, he says, as the Father sent me, again, this person, so I send you. Or 1 John 5, John says, those who have the Son, the person, have life. Jesus said of his relationship with his body, his followers, and himself, he said, my sheep listen to my voice, they follow me. Again, this is deeply personal. And I think it's not without accident that the first verse of 1 Corinthians 11 Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so again, you hear how this is very personal. Now, if you're still not convinced and you tend to have a little bit of a theological mind, you will know that there have been long debates in the church about what we call real presence and lots of debates about how it is that Christ is present at Eucharist. But within those debates about real presence, And within those debates about how he might be present in bread and wine, what's assumed? That a person is here. There's no debate without saying that there somehow is a person here, not merely a great past deed of that person. I mean, who of you wants to be reduced to some act in your life? Or how can the eternal second person of the Trinity be so reduced, and of course, he can't. And of course, he never meant to say he could. He said and meant, remember me. Remember the whole three years, which of course did come to a shocking culmination in betrayal and arrest and mock trials and beating and cross and death and burial and resurrection and ascension. Even now... Jesus is alive at the right hand of God and living the most stunningly expressive, imaginative, important life you can possibly imagine. Whenever you drink this, whenever you break this bread, remember me. Not, yes, of course, including centrally something that happened 2,000 years ago, but it's an invitation to remember the person this stunning person of grace and unconditional cruciform love, utterly worthy not just of our memorial, but of our followership, our life, and our taking on of his grace-filled and generous, his cruciform spirit. So then do this in remembrance of me is not just a mental reminiscence, it's not even the emotions or psychological state that might be attached to a memory, but do this in remembrance of me is meant to be an, experiment, sorry, an experiential act, an act that's meant to have the power to create in us a self linked to Jesus or to heal the broken bits of us that are malaligned to Jesus. It's meant to be something like a trigger for us to contemplate and live into all that is attached to Jesus forgiveness of sins, victory over the powers. The creation of a new covenant, the creation of a new people, the sending of the Spirit, and the beginning of this glorious end where through the person Jesus, who we memorialize week in and week out in this bread and cup, he is the beginning of God's intended and glorious end. One commentator I read said, failure to remember is not absent-mindedness. But it's unfaithfulness. It's more like turning one's back on God. And you hear in this a very personal notion. So, what Eucharist is meant to do then is to give us a weekly spiritual discipline in which we say the story told by Passover and the story told in the Eucharistic table this is my story, this is my source of my identity. For by the power of Jesus's broken body and his shed blood, I'm no longer enslaved by the rulers or principalities of this world, by the powers of this world. I'm no longer enslaved by social norms or political or economic powers of any given tribe or culture or nation or age. This story says I'm a follower of Jesus. That's my sense of myself. And it's personal. And the cross is unspeakably important to that person and to my reconciliation with God and my redemption and the forgiveness of my sins, of course. But it's that person that I bring to mind week in and week out such that I'm reminding myself I am, above all else in my life, your follower. I do this in remembrance of you, this stunning, amazing, glorious person who could never be reduced to one thing in his life. So when we weekly participate in Eucharist, we proclaim with all the church that the person and the death of Jesus is core to our sense of self in the world. And with the whole church in Eucharist, we do indeed proclaim this person and his death until he comes again. Well, Friday when I was thinking about all this, I happened to pick up a little devotional on my table uh, called Centering Prayers. And um, the, the little passage for that day, February 8, said this. And I'll leave this with you. Little Centering Prayer read, Eternal and living God, superficial life attempts to smother the truth that I'm a chosen beneficiary of your love. Help me to remember today. Help me to wake up more fully to it. May I recognize, receive, and remember your love, despite all the external evidence to the contrary. And that's the battleground, isn't it? All of us right now could name four or five things where the evidence seems to say that God is not with us. But week in and week out, we come to this table and we remember this person and his eternal and present at the right hand of God, presently living in solidarity with us. And we come to see how the love of Jesus operates under a different set of rules that we often can't comprehend. But we can feel it, and that makes all the difference.
1: This passage of Paul's words prompting us into a lived remembrance contains past, present, and future. Paul casts our imaginations back to that night when Jesus broke bread with his disciples, observed Passover with them. It's present in his in Jesus' request that we now continue in the practice of doing this in remembrance, and it also has future where Paul says that we do this, we remember this, we practice this until he comes. And as Todd said, the the person of Jesus, the whole of his life of obedience, holiness, love, generosity, all of these are wrapped up in this practice that we partake in each week. And in the absence of Jesus' physical presence, he has sent us, as we see in John 14, his spirit to deepen these truths in our hearts. So this practice is a time where we intentionally engage our whole selves. We intentionally turn the whole of ourselves toward the person of Jesus. And in this very personal and relational engagement with God and with each other, we are shaped and changed individually and communally. The word Eucharist means thanksgiving. It's a name that comes from what Jesus did when he broke the bread and gave thanks and offered up the cup and gave thanks. And so in these next few quiet moments, we invite you to remember the person of Jesus, how he has shown up in your story. Perhaps you have an imagination of him or an inner sense of who he is or a truth of who he is. And we invite you to enter into thanksgiving of his very real presence with us as our response.